Welcome to episode 87 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast, brought to you from sunny Costa Rica. It's uh, 10 p.m., so it's not that sunny now. Well, I'm sure it is somewhere in the world, but it's dark outside, and I'm just looking over the skyline of San Jose for the first evening. I've been five weeks up in the mountains on a retreat. I guess you'll probably hear something about that on the podcast soon. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that you, you haven't heard from me in a while. I will say a little bit about that soon in another podcast about why that is. There's been various reasons for that. Today, I'm just going to freestyle. I want to share some thoughts that might be useful and experiment with this, see if I can just pull out sound recorder and record a good podcast on the move. And if so, then maybe posts will be a little bit more regular. So we'll see how this comes up. Someone asked me, it's quite a common question that therapists get asked. I didn't really think I had much insight into this question last time I was asked, but when I was asked this time, I had quite a lot to say. And I think I'll just expand on that. It's, uh, you know, what questions should I ask to identify a good therapist before enlisting them? I mean, the first question is obviously, well, you know, are they Anthony Samaroff? Are you thinking of booking a therapist? But probably won't be taking on tons and tons of clients, even though I'm back to work just now, because I'm working on a big project. So that's a couple of cliffhangers for you, three things. What was I doing up in the mountains? Why have I not been posting? And what is this new big project that I'm working on? So I'd like to put out quite a few episodes. Sorry for the fluff at the beginning. I know those of you who know me won't mind the fluff because you probably want to know what's going on. But if you're a new listener, you'll be like, when does this dude get to the point for crying out loud? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to the point. Let's hit it. So, yeah, basically, how do, I, how do I identify a good therapist? What questions should I ask that might give me a good idea? And I thought of five things that I think are quite important. Uh, there's probably tons more. But I, I, I said a little bit about them and I've got a lot more to say than could fit in a Facebook message. So I'm going to expand on those five reasons, right? The first one, I think, is... I don't know if you know who Carl Rogers is. He developed a approach to counselling called person-centred, which has probably been the most influential thing in psychotherapy since Freud, I would say. So, you know, 60s... I think he really came into the, the centre of attention and he was influencing the major therapists of his time, uh, Fritz Perls, who originated Gestalt therapy to... Well, he learned from everyone and he says so in his, his presentations. Like, I learned this from Carl Rogers. I, I learned this from the guy that does primal therapy. I learned this, you know... It was an interesting time in psychology because what you had was the, the beginning of the humanistic approach to psychology, which, you know, saw... I don't know how to even put that, you know, the hu human potential uh, for flourishing despite the difficulties of life. 
you know, you had Abraham Maslow, the hierarchy of needs, trying to think about the human being in terms of its needs and increasing its evolution, so to speak. So what Carl Rogers was really for, what his revolution was, I think, is he put the client as the authority rather than the practitioner as the authority. So in the Freudian model, you have your doctor basically and he sees patients and he diagnoses them and he says what's wrong with them and that's his job to go in there and look around. Carl Rogers is like, nah, the client's the expert on themselves. So what we're going to do here is we're going to unlock the expertise of the client. So what we do is, you know, we listen to what they say and we prompt them. We ask a question to that go, goes a bit deeper. We paraphrase what they just said to make sure we got it right and that's a great technique because when you paraphrase what the client says if you get it right they go yeah and that makes them feel like opening up because they've been understood so they help to go uh, a layer deeper and they expand yes not only that but and if you don't get it right the paraphrase that's usually helpful as well because they'll go no no it's not that it's 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 this they'll correct you so by saying the wrong thing, you actually help them arrive at the right thing. So it's a very, very useful approach. As you become more and more skilled at paraphrasing, and the, you know, I've seen this happen to me over the course of eight years practice officially and more than that, unofficially paraphrasing, you, you begin to hear what the client hasn't said. Uh, what the client is... There was a person-centered therapist that said, the edge of awareness, I think it was Eugene Gendlin, but who's a Scottish guy, he died a few years ago, but um, I'm not sure it was him. He says, the, client, the edge of the client's awareness. So you, you hear that when they speak, and I hear that when people speak, what they're trying to say, and I'm able to say that. And they're like, yeah, you know, sometimes they're so, sometimes they're so surprised or it's so, they, they love being got that much. They don't even have a chance to think, whoa, how did you know that? You know, it's really, really effective. So that just happens over the years as you increase your sensitivity um, and you listen, you get to, li you, you get better and better at listening because you've been listening with the intention to understand. So these are kind of techniques that probably always existed. Another thing a person-centered therapist might do is say, well, you said this now, and you, and you said this before, they, those seem to contradict each other. Have you got any thoughts about that? You know, stuff like that. Or a great one is, if the client's talking about a dilemma that they have, they might not even realize that's what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. So you make it apparent. You say, well, it sounds like, on one hand, you feel this, and on the other hand, you're pulled that way. Really, really useful. These are things that you can actually practice with your friends and loved ones. They're not just for therapists. So he was really developing this approach of throwing it over to the client to open it up to say more. And I would say that most therapists, whatever modality, whatever approach they're taking to psychotherapy, they usually build it on Carl Rogers now. So even if you're Gestalt, psychodynamic, what psychodynamic is, is the modern 
developed version of what Freud started with psychoanalytic. So um, it still uses these the idea of drives, no, maybe not just all the same drives as Freud, who thought obviously had the sex drive, the will to live, and the, the will to die as well. Um, those aren't his words, but he thought those were three of the major drives. And people have argued, well, you know, Freud was so obsessed with sex because he was mostly dealing with hysterical, in inverted commas, women from Victorian times when there was big taboos on sex and that meant there was a lot of sexual repression in the society and that's why maybe he overemphasized sex as a drive. Maybe if he lived in a culture where there was lots of rules and taboos around food, he would have said, well, the main drive is obviously the drive to eat. And that's why everyone's mania because like, I went to Freud's house in Vienna and I remember reading an article in one of his books and like his analysis of this patient was amazing until at the end he brought it to some sexual thing and I was like, hello, like where did that come from? I've got a lot of good things to say about Freud. He's very now underrated because people like to focus on where he got it wrong and that's a lot of places but that's because so much of what he got right we just take for granted in our culture. The idea that we're driven by unconscious forces, we take that for granted now. That wasn't the case when he came along and, and he needs to be credited for that but you know I could go on and on. This is good stuff, I mean this isn't exactly what we're 10 minutes in and I didn't mean to talk all about this, but this is good stuff to know. So um, hopefully you're not bored. Yeah, I, you probably won't be. I'm just getting my water in. And if you think that's an aside, it's just a reminder. Are you getting your water in? Psychodynamic, now you know a little bit about different approaches to psychotherapy. Most people, even if they say they're psychodynamic or gestalt or whatever it is, they'll have a lot of person-centered in the mix, maybe 60, 80%. Develop trusts in the client. I mean, their trust in you. And you really do that by those person-centered approaches because they demonstrate your understanding of the client. You listen with the intent to understand and then you demonstrate your understanding. So when you demonstrate your understanding of the client, oh, they feel like you get them. And when they feel like you get them, it's easy for them to open up and they understand you. Now, when you've got that connection, then you can build all sorts of fancy stuff on Carl Rogers if you choose to. Some person-centered therapists just stay there. They won't become directive. They won't start directing the session. Um, Personally, I would feel like I was practicing with one arm tied behind my back if I just stayed with the Carl Rogers stuff because I've got skills and I find that it's more useful when I exercise those skills. So I'm very good at the Carl Rogers stuff, but I use my intuition. I've been doing this for a while. I'm pretty bloody good. At least that's the report that I get. So, and um, you know, the, I see the results with the people that I work with. So I trust myself when I've got that trust to use other approaches that I have. What's my approach? Well, to use the technical term, I'm integrative, which says nothing. That just means I borrow from all skills. I believe in tools, not skills. I stole that from someone. I think it's um, 
David Burns, Dr. David Burns, that wrote the Feeling Good Handbook. He's CBT. I don't like CBT for reasons we can discuss in another podcast. Tell me if you want me to know, if you want to know. But I admire Dr. David Burns because he wrote a book called Feeling Good Together. And that was a book on using CBT in relationships. He wrote the whole book and then the publisher was going to run it and they were doing some trials and he called up the publishers and said, hold up, you can't publish. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The techniques don't work. We've been running trials for three months and no one uses them because the thing is when people are suffering, they use CBT to help them not suffer, but it's not working in the relationships because in the relationship, they both like blaming each other. So they don't want to practice the techniques. They don't want to question their own thinking part patterns. So they're not using, they're not using the techniques. So the book doesn't work. We need to write a new book. And he went away and he did some research and he wrote a new book and you can get it feeling good together. And he says the techniques in that book did work. Because of that, I very much admire him. Not everyone would do that. Person-centered approach is very good even if it's 100% person-centered, because it very much protects clients from mediocre or untalented counsellors. There's very little you can do wrong if you're good at the Rogerian approach. So I think that would allow lots and lots of people to be effective counsellors and therapists. You know, people who couldn't be, you know, a Freud or a Jung or a, a really great analyst, people who couldn't be a really great practitioner because they've not got the, they've not got the insight, they've not got the the flair for some technique, they could still be very useful as person-centered practitioners. There's very little chance of them doing harm. I mean, unless you go really Freudian and say, well, what if they've got a bunch of unprocessed shit? Definitely in those areas when the client comes in, if they don't know about it, then whenever the client brings that stuff, they're not going to be able to be person-centered. And that is what my sort of first question or my first few questions, there's a little bit of that in there. I guess my first question, uh, an interesting question, would be to ask a therapist how much of your work is sort of Rogerian person-centered and how what how much of it isn't, you know? And see that stuff that isn't, like, what is it? What do you do that you would say isn't very Rogerian? So uh, one thing I might do that isn't very Rogerian, well, I don't know. Maybe you'd have to ask uh, someone else, I guess someone who's a real expert. But I think very occasionally... I would share a personal anecdote if I thought it was illustrative of the point that I had to make about their experience or I thought it was illuminating or showed that I was human and had experienced something similar and come to a conclusion. That's not something I'd like to do very often for obvious reasons. It's not my session. I'd never talk about myself for the sake of talking about myself. It would only be in the case where I thought I knew that it would be humanizing for the client to hear that they weren't alone and to connect on a personal level. 
much more directive, something I would do is sometimes when I tell people to go inside like and look at what's going on, <laughs> yeah, tell them. That's not very Rogerian, telling people what to do. But I know, I know when it's time. I say like, you know, I'll say something like very directive, like where do you feel that feeling in your body? I kind of see the psyche as made up of parts, or at least it appears to be made out of parts, whether it is or not. So, you you know, that's where you get into inner conflict. A lot of the time, I will tell them what to say to a part. When they, when they found a part, they're like, oh, this part's really scared, or oh, this part's that. I'll say, why don't you try saying this, or why don't you try saying that? Why do I do that? Well, I've gone inside tons, and they've not. And I know how to work with my part. Not only have I gone inside to myself tons, I've observed hours and hours and hours a week of other people going inside and talking to their parts. So I know what to say and they don't, right? Quite frankly, I've got more expertise and experience than them in um, speaking to myself and um, opening up and getting others to speak to themselves and open up. So that's why I tell them what to say. And it works. And then the, obviously the idea is once they've experienced this enough, they don't need me to tell them what to say. So they, so after a few months, they might say, okay, I'm telling the part this, or okay, I'm telling the part that. Great, now I'm happy. I didn't have to tell them what to say. They already knew because they've been working on it for a while. And I gave them an example. Like, in my opinion, what the fuck's the point in coming in if they can do it on their own at home? Yeah, it's probably actually easier to do it if there's someone there to supervise you because they hold the space. So they kind of anchor you into the world and you can let go a little bit more because they're holding the space so you don't need to hold the space. So there is a value to that. But... You know, I want them to get a shortcut. I want to help them as quickly as possible. So the thing is, because we've got that trust developed, they will tell me if... Oh, no, I don't want to say that. I want to say this. Fine. You know, if they don't want to say what I suggest to them, they're the boss. But it doesn't happen that often, and I'm happy if it does, because that means they're being discerning. But, yeah, people appreciate that, and no one did it for me. Uh, I've never had a therapist that's got the results out of me that I've got out of my clients. That's not me, me being conceited. I'm just saying that as happens to be a fact. I would like to have, but it's just never happened for me. So it still could. Maybe it's you. Maybe you know a very, very skilled therapist that I should see that, that will help me more. And I'm not talking my therapist down either because they were good. Otherwise, I wouldn't have kept on going. I just never got someone who got as much out of me as I got out of my clients. I'm sorry if it's a little bit noisy outside. It can't be helped. So there are some examples of how I'm directive. There's tons of other examples. And I think that's useful. And I think that I'm skilled enough to make judgments like that. And if someone doesn't like it, then they can find someone else. And also, in my experience, people really, really like it uh, because they want someone to show them what to do. So I guess people have different approaches and it would be nice to hear when they're going to take the lead. And in my opinion, a lot of therapists don't take the lead enough, but that's fine because really a lot of people shouldn't be taking the lead. 
you need to be very sophisticated and know what you're doing. And that goes, that's the same for any leadership role. But, you know, you don't go to a personal trainer for them to keep on going, how does that feel when you lift them this way? How does that feel when you lift them that way? Maybe sometimes they'll ask you that, but uh, they know what the form is and they should be looking at your form and correcting your form until you know yourself, especially if you might be doing yourself an injury. And I've got my clients um, judging their parts, uh, not being happy with their parts' emotions, trying to get rid of their emotions all the time. So I have to say, why don't you, why don't you see if you can just um, let that be as it is and not try, uh, you know, not try and get the part to not feel that way for a while, um, so that we can get in and talk to the part, right? So that's like correcting their form, okay? Tying on from that one is question two, which is very similar. Well, it's on the same theme. It's popular for therapists to be non-directive, but I've heard sometimes it's also good actually for the therapist to take charge and move the session in directions which they know will be helpful. In what circumstances would you do that? When are you comfortable doing that? When do you think that's good for the client? Uh, are you comfortable doing that? Uh, do you think you're good at doing that? If you do do that, and what do you think makes it good? What do you think makes it useful? These kind of questions around the client, the therapist being directive. Now, it might be that you're the kind of person that doesn't really want a directive therapist. In which case, great, you'll get lots of details from the therapist and you'll be amazed at how many therapists will say, oh no, I don't do much of that. I don't do much of that. I like the client to be the authority. And that's good. But for me, that's like 60, 70% of my toolkit. At the beginning of the session, it's like 80, 90. <laughs> well, it really depends. But yeah, definitely before the trust has been established, before I feel like they feel... People usually trust me right away, but I want them to feel fully understood by me before I start messing around and taking charge. So if, if someone's talking a lot, I won't be directive at all. I'll just ask questions and stuff, uh, paraphrase and ask questions. But when they slow down the talking and if we can get things slowed down and if they get more... Because like talking's about organising the content of your mind, right? When someone comes in and talks a lot, I love those sessions. They're easy. All I need to do is be very pa patient and understanding and encouraging, caring, loving, be good at demonstrating my understanding. I love those sessions when people just come in and talk. But there, there's going to come, there usually comes a time when people don't talk as much. You know, it might be six sessions in, it might be 12 sessions in. It might be after the third session. But, you know, sometimes people come in and they got a lot to say. It might be in the first session. They don't, you know, they might already be there. They might be already in their feelings. But I feel like usually there's a period where people really need to organize the content of their mind. And this can get spooky. Like, I mean, for me, there was months where I went to therapy and I barely said anything to the therapist. I came in, I sat down, I said a few words and I started feeling my feelings and my feelings came on really fucking strong. And I spent most of the time just feeling my feelings and watching them in my body. And occasionally I say, this moving or that moving. And you'd say, what are you experiencing right now? And I'd 
give her a little update. Or, um, but, you know, feeling my feelings was enough, really. I didn't have much to say. And that's really funny because when we first started say, seeing each other, and, you know, it was horrible sometimes because um, the moment I landed, I'm looking at the clock because I couldn't fit everything I wanted to say into an hour. So I, looking back on it, I should have just booked 90-minute sessions. Um, that would have been good for me. So it went from one extreme to another. Anyway, most people don't go to that extreme. I've not had that many sessions where clients barely spoken to me for an hour and just said things for five minutes, you know. Even when they're in their feelings, what, what does that feel like? Can you see it changing? What are you experiencing? This, that, and the other. Oh, you've got this conflict. You've got that conflict. Can you separate those two? Where do you feel that feeling? Now, what are they like? Oh, does it? Oh, that um, starting to change. Oh, you feel more comfortable with that. Now, what's happening, etc. So even if there's not much mind chatter, still quite a lot goes on when people are in their feelings. I find all this stuff really interesting. If you're still listening, then you do too. So it doesn't really matter if I go off track. You'll be amazed how many therapists will say they don't really like doing that much. I mean, I think my brother said he was seeing someone and a lot of the time he wished that she'd be a little bit more directive, but she was very hands-off. It's like, it's funny with people who do IFS, internal family systems therapy. That's the type that talks about you being made up of parts. There's quite a few podcasts on internal family systems therapy in this podcast series because I'm influenced by it. A lot of them are really Rogerian, which is like totally funny because when I'm practicing IFS as part of my integrative approach, I'm not fucking Rogerian. I mean, I am in the sense that, you know, I ask how does this feel and paraphrase and stuff like that, but more or less I tell them how to do the parts work and if they don't want to do it my way, they'll correct me, you know, and they'll say, oh, I'd rather do this than that. But usually I take the lead. I've not done any formal training in IFS, but I saw an IFS therapist for years. I listened to tons of videos on it. I practiced it in my meditation. Uh, From first-hand experience, I practiced. I just didn't get accredited. Because what's the point? I'm going to go go on a course and spend a bunch of money and say it's time that I should be seeing my clients. The reason why I'm good at what I do is because I was fucking miserable. And I sorted myself out and I've always been working on myself and I got first-hand experience. I didn't set out to become a therapist, but by the time I finished university, the best skills I had was helping me and other people sort out their head and their communication. Really good at, became really good at communication and that I used that inside, those communication skills inside and helped other people use them inside. So went and studied to be a therapist. It seemed like the logical thing to do. It's not what, it wasn't my goal when I was in school. I didn't say, when I grow up, I want to be a therapist, miss. It seemed like I had the skills and it seemed like a, a path with heart. And yeah, and it, ha- and it is a path with heart. I enjoy it a lot. I get a lot of satisfaction from helping. So I see my main training as having been internal. The formal training was definitely useful, but it was useful in the perspective of developing those sort of Rogerian skills and 
learning a little bit more about the landscape of how people look at it in academia and and getting feedback and from tutors and saying, oh, Anthony, you did notice this and why did you do that? And I think you missed them because this. Yeah, I would have loved to get more of that, actually. I'd love to have time to do something like volunteer with Samaritans or something like that and get on the phone lines because that is almost all Rogerian and the feedback I get in the training might be really useful, but there's an opportunity cost. You know what I mean? So, uh, so, so I'd be able to see less clients and work less on my own projects if I did more formal qualifications. Uh, I'm qualified enough in practical terms, but I always wonder, you know, what would I get from more feedback from people listening in to sessions, not from supervision. You know, you can always get supervision, but they're not there. You know, you've not got tapes. So... And you, they're not on, you're, you're not on the line to them when you volunteer with a phone line. They're not putting you on the phones if they don't think you can handle suicidal people and the Samaritans. They're not putting you on the phone if you, they don't think you can handle someone that's just been battered by their spouse when you volunteer for domestic abuse helpline or you, if you, they don't think you can deal with serious addicts when you volunteer for a narcotics helpline. So that's always my advice to people who want to become a therapist. Go and volunteer with a phone line because you can go to uni and spend all that money getting formal training, but how do you know if you're going to like it? Go and volunteer with the phone line. They will train you for free and then you'll find out if you like it. And then when you want to go to uni to, to study to be a counsellor or a therapist, there you go, it's on your CV. You volunteered at the phone line. They even gave you a qualification. You might be able to skip a year and you didn't have to pay a penny for it. So that's what I suggest to people. That's what I wish I had done, but I didn't know until I went to uni. A bunch of people, how did you get into this? Oh, I volunteered with this phone line or that phone line and it was so awesome that I thought I'd go and study counselling. Damn, why didn't I think of that? Okay, so that's the first two. I mean, they're kind of one. How much of your stuff's Rogerian and how, what do you build on top of that? What is your non-directive stuff? It's popular for therapists to be non-directive, but I've heard sometimes there's also good reasons for the therapist to take charge and go in directions which they know will be helpful. In what circumstances would you do that? Okay, new topic. What are your attitude and beliefs towards forgiveness? If they don't know what you mean by that, you can say, so do you think that forgiveness is like a practice or do you think forgiveness is the result of a practice? Do you think that forgiveness is necessary? You know, do you think forgiveness is an indication that someone's healed, you know, that they forgive their abusers, for example? Or do you think that's even relevant? Do you think forgiveness can ever be detrimental to someone if it's premature, if it's premature forgiveness, or even ever? Do you think that sometimes someone should never, in inverted commas, forgive someone that's traumatised or abused them? Is there any reason why, you know, they wouldn't? And the reason for that is you have to be very, very careful with the new agey streak of love and light that's running through so much psychotherapy. Not because, you know, all the cliches don't apply. Like, 
Resentment is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's about the attitude and approach because if you go into a therapist's office and you get outraged at someone that's traumatized you or abused you, especially guess what? Ding, 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 your parents. And the therapist can't hold that. This is extremely common, extremely fucking common. Even amongst therapists, oh, but they're your parents. Oh, I'm sure they did the best they could. All this shit, right? Which is going to harm you. It's going to re-traumatize you. Because they, your parent isn't in the fucking room. And they care more about your parent who isn't in the room than they care about you. Why? Because they've not dealt with their shit towards their own parent. Otherwise, they'd be able to recognize the fact that you're in process and you actually have to feel all your feelings if you ever want to complete those feelings. No imposing premature forgiveness on clients. It's fucking damaging. Your therapist should not be empathizing more with your abusive parents than they empathize with you. Period. If you ever want to get over it, you have to go through it. You have to feel everything. And if they use these cliches, they'll push you back into disassociation and you'll never, ever get over it. And the chances why they do it is because they've never got over it. Because they've got too many rules about how they're allowed to feel regarding their parents. And they want to impose those rules upon you because they're projecting onto you. Yes, it would be nice if we didn't have to hold resentments on from the past. However, it's a fucking process. It's a process. If you really, 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 really want to have no resentments, then you have to be perfectly okay with burning with resentment. Can you sit and hold your fire when something fucking pisses you off? Can you sit cross-legged and just feel that? Can you enjoy it? Can you love it? Do you have judgments about it that you can't put it aside? Can you just Feel your fire. And can you stay with it and not distract yourself, not send a text message? How long can you stay with it? If you get good at that, that will change your life. That will fucking change your life. I promise you. Feel the power of your fire, of your anger. Don't act on it. Don't flame the other person. Don't do anything. Just feel it. And if you can, love it. Not feeling angry, but love the part that's angry. Say, wow, you really are feeling fiery today, aren't you? Whoa, you really are angry. What's up? Tell me. Tell me how you feel and let it rant. See if you can find the vulnerability under the anger. If you could feel angry until you feel the heart that's underneath the anger, 
if you could even start to cry. What a catharsis. How's the therapist going to give you that experience if she can't tolerate you being angry? It's happened to me before. I didn't know as much as I did now. I hadn't been practicing for long. I had a therapist. Wouldn't let me get angry at my mum. It's terrible. I spent more time the next couple of weeks trying to process the therapy session than processing the stuff that was going on with my mum because she gave me more to process. And then... When I tried to bring it up and out of a conversation with her, she shut that down as well. She didn't want to take criticism. Just like my mum. Hmm, I wonder why she shut me down talking about my mum. Is it because she's kind of fucking like her? And it's really interesting because when I said, well, you know, which it, but it's totally fucking valid for a client to say. But I didn't know this at the time. This is like seven years ago or something like that. If a client said this to me, I'd be interested. I said, well, you know, because you wouldn't let me get angry, I didn't say it in those words, you know, I felt, I was wondering if you were bringing some of your own material into the, into the room. Like, therapists do that. I don't know a single good therapist that wouldn't admit that that's happened to them sometimes, that their own materials and either interfered with the session or brought, or it's just been brought up by the session. In fact, one of the things I loved about being a therapist for the first few years is it doesn't happen as much as it used to. It happened all the time when I started because I was way more wounded when I started than I am now. Whatever shit people were bringing up, I resonated with it. There was stuff in my life that I had to work on that was similar to what they were talking about. So seeing, working through their stuff with them was like, fucking yes, these people are doing it, man. And it was giving me thought to go away in my life and work in those areas as well. That's one of the things I loved about it. It brought up my own material. Now, I didn't bring that into the session, obviously. I just put, it, I put a pin in it and I put it aside and I'd maybe go and talk, talk, talk about it. Uh, not, not about the client, but I talk about what the session reminded me of uh, with my girlfriend or one of my friends. And then I get to work through it as well. So that's one of the things I loved about it. Anyway, she was like, oh, that's very presumptuous. And I was like, well... And she, you know, she's like, oh, very presumptuous. What? That's very presumptuous. I can't imagine me ever saying that to a client. They've got a right to say whatever is in their mind. They can say whatever the fuck they want in my office when they're talking to me. I've had people call me names, shout at me, say that I'm arrogant. I don't give a shit. They're going through their stuff. And sometimes they're going to project that onto me and that's totally fine. And sometimes they might even have a valid criticism. I've got things wrong a few times, probably with each client. And sometimes I notice and I apologize next time. And other times I didn't realize the client thought I got something wrong until they brought it up. And either I went, apologized, or I explained why I took that approach. And sometimes the client understood 
for example, sometimes a client's been telling me about some horrible thing that happened to them, how they got abused or this or that. And I've used a turn of phrase that's been very blunt or, you know, disgusting or an unpleasant turn of phrase. And, uh, you know, they've come back and said, oh, I didn't like that choice of words. And then I've said, okay, yeah, I totally understand that. Um, I was a little bit uh, in two minds about using it myself, but I I used it deliberately. And the reason why is I wanted to be really flagrant and hold it up in your face so that you could see exactly what it was and not be, you know, not minimize it. Like, you know, show you how fucking gross it is. So that we're being real here. I wanted you to be disgusted by it. But you have to be skilled to do these things. Some people shouldn't be doing them because they'll fucking do it wrong. There's tons of stuff that I do personally that I don't think every therapist should do because I just don't think a lot of people are skilled enough for it. And that might sound conceited, but hey, I don't think I am because it's easy to talk to me about my flaws. I own my flaws and I will admit to them. And I also own those things that I'm good at. I don't have a problem saying that I'm good at something. Once I was, uh, I've done so much work on myself. I've been to, I've not gone on holidays most of my life. When I had money, I'd go on a retreat or something like that if I had a holiday. I'd go on a self-help event because that's what was interesting to me. I prefer that to holidays. I prefer that to lying on the beach. I like working on myself. So, so, you know, I'd say, I can't remember what I said. I said, you know, oh, I'm pretty good at this. Uh, I know I'm good at this, but, you know, it probably wasn't, I probably wasn't complicated making myself. I'm just speaking in an offhand way. Oh, I know I'm good at this, but such and such and such and such. And one of the girls in the circle said, I really don't like it when you say you're good at things. Interesting. She comes from Scotland, Glasgow, and there's a culture where you're not allowed to say anything good about yourself. But the thing is, I don't have a problem with it because I've got no ego about it. I'm not saying I'm good about it because I think I'm so great. I'm just saying it because it's relevant to the conversation and I have no problem saying when I'm good at something. I've got no problem saying I'm crap at art. I've got no sense of direction. My hand-eye coordination is terrible. I spent six months on yoga retreats and I'm still stiff as a board. I'm shit at yoga, but I fucking love it. You know, it's like, you know, I've got no problem saying I'm bad at stuff and I've got no problem saying, saying I'm good at stuff. And if I do something really good, if I write a really great article, I've not, no problem saying, oh, I love this article, it's really great. Because I've not got any ego on it. I don't think writing a great article makes me great. I mean, I do think I'm pretty great, but it's not writing the article that makes me great. It's uh, it's just, I like it. The same way that if you wrote a nice article, I would like it. And so therefore I can say I like that. Why would I bother making it if I didn't like it? So I think that's good. So for that reason... I'm very open to criticism and I'm always open to criticism from clients. But that therapist shut it down. Whereas I would have liked to have a 
nice big long conversation about it and figure out what the fuck was going on there. And especially if a client has a criticism of me, that is juicy as fuck. I want to open that up and find out if there's any truth in it and of what therapeutic help it would be to the client to criticize an authority figure and have that authority figure accept the criticism and work with it. Wouldn't it be good to accept that, to, to experience that? Did you ever experience that from your parents? Did you ever experience that from your teachers at school? Did you ever experience that from one of your bosses? Most people didn't. So it would be very, very good for you to come in and criticize your therapist. One client criticized me for being late, five minutes late, a bunch of times. And the only reason why I did it was because he didn't seem to mind. So I became lax. This is years ago. I don't do this shit anymore. Sometimes I'm late, but I don't like get lax. Um, that's usually for a good reason. Um, but I got lax with him and he criticized me for it and I took it and I was always on time after that. That was good for him. He learned to stand up for himself and get a good result. Okay? That's just one example. Um, and I thanked him for holding me accountable. That's, but obviously that's not like a big infringement psychologically, but it was still good for him to experience criticizing and having that taken well and having a positive outcome. So it's a great thing if a client criticizes you and you can have a proper conversation about it. But the therapist was just like my mum and didn't take the criticism and shut down the conversation so we can even discuss it properly, discuss what happened. So I just left even more confused. So it's a, it can be a very good thing if the client, if the therapist makes a mistake, if the therapist is open to criticism. So this is good information to be armed with if you're gonna to go to therapy. On that, question three, which is about attitude and beliefs towards forgiveness. So I think that would go into one like, say, could you tell me about a time? I'd say, could you tell me about a couple of times uh, where a client confronted you because they didn't like your approach or had a criticism of you? And how did you handle that? Oh, it would be good to get two or three examples of that. That would be juicy. That is a really fucking good question to ask a therapist before booking them. That would be really, really, really good. Oh, I'd love to hear those stories. See if you're a therapist or a coach or a practitioner. Please, 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 please send me an audio message of a story or several stories of you receiving a criticism on your approach or being confronted or challenged by a client on any of your behaviors or for any reason and how you handled it. Please, I'm begging you. I would love to put a podcast out. And if you don't, if you're not, but you have a friend who's one or you've got a therapist who's one who'd like to appear on the podcast, please get them to send me the voice message. Wouldn't that make a fucking great podcast?
That would make a fucking great podcast. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. That, I, I, I am really, really enjoying this. So I hope you guys like it too. We're almost at an hour now. So, so last one. That was actually five because that made sense. So I'm going to circle back to four. And this is more related to three, which was what's your attitude and beliefs towards forgiveness, etc. Is it necessary for healing? Do you ever think it's detrimental to forgive? One, one more thing there. Yes, 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 uh, yes, yes. Not being able to forgive someone is part of the indication that you're not over that shit yet. It's part of your emotional immune system. So that can be your system saying, get the fuck away from that person. You're not ready to be anywhere near that person right now. And that's why you can't forgive them because it's not safe. You have to first remove your triggers so that when you go near that person, they're not triggering you off all the time. Now, the problem is it can get to the point where you don't forgive them so much that you don't even look at the triggers that they're setting off. So in the sense, you're going into disassociation. You should be aware that you're experiencing profound emotions associated with their behavior and when other people display similar behaviors they might just be well-meaning but it's going to trigger you off as well so it's not enough to have that immune system and be like ah get that person the fuck away from me i don't want to go to mom and dad's house it's too stressful you have to work on yourself if you want to be free wouldn't it be amazing if they could say anything and it didn't set you off? I'm not there yet. Far from there. But I've seen a lot of improvements. I still haven't done all the requisite work. I've been focusing on all the other things. But you know, how many people can see their parents and not get triggered off all the time? It's pretty fucking rare. So 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 last question how do you feel and respond when your clients are enraged or outraged at people from their past uh, do you ever think that they're do you ever think clients are like overreacting or self-indulgent or emotion or too emotional do you ever think they should just pull themselves together and get over it if, if they've been upset about something for years and they're still going on about it or like see do you get scared when people are outraged or angry are you yeah and, and how do you feel about that i mean do you are you willing to let people overreact if you think they're overreacting do you think it's necessary to overreact i just think it'd be interesting to find out what the therapist's thoughts are i'm not gonna tell you what they should think on that. I just think it's an interesting term overreacting because I mean whose judgment is it whether it's an overreaction or not? In a sense, all triggers are overreactions, but I guess my opinion is you're not really overreacting. Yeah, overreacting like you know when your girlfriend's on her period. But overreacting. Well if you think that's sexist, it was my ex girlfriend that came up with that one. She is really, really funny. Really funny. Funniest, funniest woman I've ever met in my life.
she is so fucking funny. I shouldn't even say funniest woman I've ever heard in my life. That sounds sexist. Funny, one of the funniest people I've ever known. <laughs> Miss her a lot. We're, in, we're still on good terms. I'm on good terms with most or all of my exes. She's a good person. Um, let's see. So yeah, it's an interesting, ter- who judges what's an overreaction and what's an underreaction? I said, whenever we get triggered, we're technically overreacting. However, I would say we're not really overreacting if we're triggered, are we? Because the whole point of being triggered is you're reacting to something that happened in the past. So it might look like you're overreacting to the present stimulus. But the truth is, it's just your reaction from the past that's incomplete. That's what trigger is. You've reacted, but you've not unreacted. And it's still living inside you, your reaction to the original trauma. So the question is, how do we pull the trigger out? That in itself is a whole fucking podcast. I never get any feedback from you guys. Very rarely does someone email me and say, I really like this episode or that. Ah, sometimes it happens on Facebook. Someone says, oh, that was a great episode. But, you know, that means I don't know what you like and what you don't like. So I guess I can assume you like everything. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to it. But, you know, you know where to find me. I'm not exactly hard to find Anthony Samroff. I'm the only one in the world. You can find me on Facebook. And you can email me, anthony at beyourselfandloveit.com. So those are my five questions for therapists. How much of what you do is like Carl Rogers, sort of person-centered, and what do you build on top of that, the non-directive stuff? What do you build on top of it? It's popular for therapists to be non-directive, but I've heard sometimes it's good, actually, for the therapist to take the reins sometimes and go in directions which they th- that know will be helpful because they've got more experience. So in what circumstances do you do that? How do you do that? Three, what are your attitudes and beliefs about forgiveness? Do you think forgiveness can be premature? Do you think that someone can be holding on to something for too long? How does one arrive at forgiveness? Is that desirable? Is it ever undesirable to forgive an abuser? I think it's undesirable at the beginning. I think a lot of people like to fool themselves into thinking they've forgiven another person, but actually they just don't want to deal with the emotions. So it's an excuse not to have to deal with the emotions to say, oh no, I love my parents. My parents did the best job they could with the knowledge they had at the time. Even though my auntie gave my mum a book on parenting and she never fucking read it. She never fucking read it. I guess she did the best job she possibly could. No, she didn't. (laughs) She had the book right there. She could have fucking read it. Really, really good book on parenting. So my mum didn't do the best she could. She thought she knew it all already, even though she was constantly fighting. But she was constantly fighting because she thought she knew it all. She still does. She still gives people advice that know more about stuff than she does. So that's an example of maybe your parents didn't do the best job they could. So it's detrimental if you think you've forgiven someone, but it's actually just a way of repressing and not dealing with unpleasant emotions you don't want to look at. Later on, it would be great if you had no resentment towards them. 
doesn't mean you need to hang out with them and be friends with them if, if you don't think they're a good influence on you. It's just you don't resent them. But people use it as an excuse not to deal with their emotions. Four, how do you feel and respond when clients are enraged at people from their past? Do you ever think they're overreacting? And are you willing to let them overreact if necessary? Also, you know, do you think that, you know, sometimes clients don't react enough? Like, sometimes I, I think a client's being too stoic. So I, I react. I point out how egregious what they're talking about is to poke them into feeling more. And it works a lot of the time. Sometimes that's what people need. Sometimes a client laughs about, I had a client who was laughing, oh, it's kind of funny, and then recounted a couple of stories where, where his older brothers abused them. And that was his way of, that was his way of telling these stories because he wanted to be heard to people in his life, but not wanting to sound like a bitch, not wanting to sound like he was whining. But he needed me to say, well, I mean, you say that was funny, but I don't think it was that funny at the time. No, no, it wasn't funny at the time. He admitted and said, I mean, you tell that story and you say, oh, this was really funny, but was it? Let it develop. Later on told him, you know, what do you think that? Or asked him, what do you think that means? Talked about how people use humor as a defense because they don't want to be judged for bringing up their trauma when they really really need to be heard by it and how that was a way of him ensuring that he didn't get taken seriously five can you tell me of a time better still can you tell me of a few times when a client confronted you because on anything really because they had a criticism of you or because they didn't like your approach and how you handled that Okay, I'll just go through them one more time because I keep on making side notes. How much of what you do is Carl Rogers person-centered and what do you build on top of the non-directive stuff? Two, it's popular for therapists to be non-directive, but I've heard that sometimes it's also good for the therapist to take charge and go in directions which they know will be helpful. In what circumstances would you do that? Number three, what's your attitude or beliefs about forgiveness? And so forth. Four, how do you feel and respond when your clients are enraged at people from their past or say very indulgent, you know, in negative emotions? Do you ever think they're overreacting? And how do you feel about that? Do you, what do you think about the word overreacting? Five, can you tell me of a time or several times when you were confronted by clients because they didn't like your approach or had any criticism? And how did you handle that criticism? And with that, that's five questions to ask a prospective therapist. I'm Anthony Samaroff, that wonderful man. Until next week, be yourself. But don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.